Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Scott Carson, and I'm the Director of Renewal here at Rio Vista. Um, and with such an informative title, it's probably helpful to know what I actually do. Um, because Renewal kind of revolves around two different things here at our church. And it's I have the privilege of demonstrating the gospel both in word and deed, both for people here in our community at this church and all throughout our city. And so on Thursday nights, um, I get to be a part of what we call Alpha. Um, and it's a group of us meeting up in the attic on Thursday nights where we're inviting people from our community to come and engage with us in spiritual conversations. And it's not just for those of us that are leading it, but it's for people in our community that have questions about faith. Life's big questions, and it's a safe place for them to come and wrestle with their doubts, their concerns, and, and it's a place that's safe to do that. And so you're invited to bring your friends to that on Thursday nights. Um, the other part of my job is helping just meet the practical needs of people both in our church and those throughout our beloved city. And so it's a great job. And so some days I feel like Oprah where it's like, you get a car and you get a car and you get a car. Um, and with that in mind, I want all of you to take a look underneath your seats one lucky winner, there will be a green envelope. Go ahead and look. I'm really kidding. I, you really don't need to look. I, I, I was really hopeful. I was hopeful I could have found like a set of cheap keys that went to nothing and placed them under one of the seats. But so some days I feel like Oprah. Um, and then other days I feel like I'm, I'm trying to help people in the middle of their crisis and see them and the gospel flourish in their lives. But today, today's more of an Oprah day. Um, in the sense that I hope that each of you walks away with um, a gift. And while I can't give all of you guys a brand new car as fun as that would have been, um, I really hope that you walk away with the gift of freedom. And it's freedom as only found in forgiveness. And as I was preparing for this morning, as I was getting ready, I watched countless videos about forgiveness. I listened and watched and read a bunch of articles about famous people who've forgiven. You know, Matt mentioned one this morning already. And as I was doing that, the one that resonated with me the most was about a woman by the name of Ava Kaur. She was a Holocaust victim. She was a survivor. And the reason it resonated with me so much was that I remember in seventh grade, she came and spoke at a school assembly at my junior high. So seventh grade me, 22 years ago, got to listen to this woman speak and share about her experiences. And we were in the middle of doing a school project where we were collecting six million pop tabs. And I should probably tell you, I did not grow up in South Florida, but central Illinois in a very small town. So pop is what we call soda. And so um, we're collecting six million of those. And in that process, we didn't collect six million of them. We collect, uh, collected 11.6 million pop tabs. And mind you, we didn't drink 11.6 million cans of soda in order to get those. Somehow it went viral through the newspaper and it made its way onto ABC News. And so people from all over the nation mailed in pop tabs to our school. And so at that school assembly where Ava Kaur was speaking, they put brown bags and each brown grocery bag had about 22,000 pop tabs. And in that school assembly, friends came and poured those all over the center of the gym floor. And when it was all said and done, we had a small mountain of pop tabs because it ended up being 527 brown grocery bags that were poured out in the middle of that floor. And so as I was reading this article about Ava, I was instantly brought back to that junior high assembly, sitting on those terrible bleachers and hearing Ava describe these nine months of starvation that she went through. She was a twin, and so she was especially subjected to a different form of torture than most people because um, Dr. Mengele did a bunch of horrific experiments on her and her sister. And so she had had a very unique and difficult situation. 
I remember she had rolled up her sleeve and showed us the ID um, numbers that were tattooed along her forearm. And I remember watching her stand behind this mountain of pop tabs, knowing that four of those represented her mother and her father and her two older siblings, knowing that the last time they were all together was when they stepped foot off of the train platform at Auschwitz. And so as I was reading through this article, something new came to light. Something caught my attention because I distinctly remember hearing her speak. But what came to light was when she said this. She said, I discovered that I had one power left in life. I could forgive the Nazis for what they did to me. And so she embarked on a four-month journey where she went through the dictionary and wrote down every bad word she could to describe the Nazis and the doctor who inflicted all this pain upon her. And at the end of those four months, she play acted as if the doctor were sitting right in front of her. She said, I forgive you. She said, I felt such freedom. She said, I was no longer a tragic prisoner. I was free from Auschwitz and I was free of Mengele. Forgiveness is the seed of peace. And so as you might have guessed what this week's question is, it's about forgiveness. And as we were collecting questions for the series, should I forgive my sibling who borrowed my clothes? Should I forgive the person who cut me off in traffic? Seems to be a popular one around here. Um, Should I forgive the person who betrayed my trust? What about the significant other who's cheated on me? What about my coworker who stole my idea and claimed it as their own? What about the person who abused me physically or emotionally? How can I forgive the person who Fill in the blank. Knowing that each blank represents something for each of us um, in this room that's different. And it's more than your parents making you forgive your sibling and awkwardly hugging it out. I don't know if you guys were a part of that. I was. Um, And it's more than forgiving the coworker who ate your lunch out of the fridge. Mason. Um, I'm kidding. He really doesn't do that. So don't hold him to it. Um, Or your roommate who forgot to unload the dishwasher for the umpteenth time. It represents real and deep wounds, wounds that are wrapped in shame, and it's caused by strangers and loved ones alike. And so last week, as Tom is in the habit of doing, he saved himself an easy question, Um, and he answered, how did evil enter into the world? And if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, do yourself a favor, go back and listen to it. Um, I highly recommend you do that. But he talks about how evil has entered the world, but this week we have to deal with its implications. We have to wrestle with how that evil has affected us personally as we try to answer the question, how can I cultivate true forgiveness when I've been mistreated? And in dealing with the consequences of evil in this world, it first takes us to a place many of us don't want to go. It's a place that we've hidden under lock and key because we don't want to forgive that person, that situation, or that unspeakable hurt. And so to go on this journey, we first have to find that key that we had years ago. We have to unlock the pain, deal with the shame associated with it, and journey through it. And I recognize as I look out across the room that many of you are thinking, Scott, you just don't understand. You don't get it. You don't get it. And while I don't know the situation that has personally affected you, let me tell you what's on the other side. If you decide to go on this journey from here to journeying through this, you know what's on the other side? It's freedom. Freedom is only found through forgiveness. 
And so to reach the other side of that journey, we're going to be looking at um, a short story um, in Luke 7, starting in verse 36. But much like opening a book six chapters in, there's some context that's helpful to understand. Because Jesus is in the middle of a teaching about what the new kingdom ethics look like, what this radical kingdom he brings is. He's teaching about the good news to the poor. He's talking about how the gospel brings this diverse group of people together to live in peace. He's teaching about radical generosity. He's teaching about servant leadership, peacemaking. And the point where we find him today is his teaching on forgiveness. Or, as Ava called it, it's the seeds of peace. And he does it while attending a dinner party. So turn with me to Luke 7, um, or you can follow along on the screens behind me. And it starts with this. One of the Pharisees asked him, what, asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And to set the scene, Jesus wasn't invited to go to Panera after church this morning. He was invited to a formal dinner party. And it wasn't just any dinner party. It was a dinner party hosted by a Pharisee. And in context, when Luke has talked about Pharisees for the first six chapters, it's only been in the context that they are hostile towards Jesus and his ministry. And so Jesus is attending a dinner party at somebody's house who's hostile towards him and his ministry. Sounds like a fun place to be. Um, And then the story continues. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So we turn back to the scene of Jesus hanging out at this party. He's reclining on like a chase lounge. So he's got one elbow down, kind of propping himself up. Another one's reaching for the appetizers. And he's just chatting away, having a great time, you know, entertaining these other guests, chatting. But in walks a woman. And not just any woman. A woman who's not even identified by her name. She's only identified by her lifestyle. Her shame preceded her into this party. And everyone immediately knew who she was and what she did. And while scripture doesn't exactly say, the context clues lead us to believe that she was most likely a prostitute. And it's also important to note that culturally speaking, she wasn't just like barging in and crashing the party as as banquets at the time weren't private parties, but were public events. And they were usually hosted in a place that was big enough that guests could come. And so if you wanted to come observe what is to be this great party, you kind of got to stand on the back wall like a junior high dance and observe everybody else having a good time. And so she comes to this party, not crashing it, um, but it takes great courage for her to still come and attend this banquet. And then notice what she does when she gets there. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Overcome. By her love for Jesus, this woman falls at his feet weeping. Weeping to the point that she's able to wet his feet with his tears. And just pause for a moment and think about that. Have you ever been so overcome by emotion in your life that you had been to the point where you could cry literally a puddle of tears? I don't know if I have. But this sinful woman comes to a party and cries and makes a puddle out of her tears. Then lacking a towel, she uses the hair of her head to dry his feet and then continually kisses Jesus' feet and then anoints him with this expensive perfume. And this, what we're witnessing is an act of humility. It's an act of worship. But the question is, what was her motivation? Why did she do this? What was so motivating to this woman? Because what we know so far 
Is it her reputation and her shame? It says that she's a sinful woman and probably doesn't care what you think about her. But her actions up to this point in the story paint a very different picture of who she is. She's purposeful. She's active. Think about it for a second. She learned where Jesus was. She didn't have the Find My Friends app or GPS. Like She took some effort. And then she went home to get this jar of expensive perfume. She stood behind him. She wept and washed and wiped. She kissed and she anointed his feet. These verbs attest to her remarkable devotion and determination. And I think what we have to understand was what is the source of her devotion to Christ? And as we continue to walk through this story, I think it becomes obvious. And now the story shifts focus from the sinful woman to the Pharisee. And so, now when a Pharisee, verse 39, now when a Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. So the Pharisee, who I assume is somewhat of a sarcastic character at this point, kind of mumbling under his breath, goes, some prophet this guy is. You know, he can't even tell that a prostitute's washing his feet. And I think the Pharisee is not upset by the presence of the sinful woman, but he had invited the prophet, the teacher, to come and be a part of this banquet. He's a bit of a dud. I mean, he can't tell who this woman is. And so Jesus, picking up on the Pharisee's mumbling, says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he, being Simon, answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which is about two years worth of an average salary, and the other 50, which is about two months of that same salary. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. So Jesus shares this short parable about two people in debt. And this parable gives us the first clue as to what the devotion of the sinful woman was. And it's a simple question. Who's going to love the money lender more? Now, I'm a guy that likes simple math. I obviously did not go to school to be a math teacher. And so if an average salary is $50,000 a year and it's two years worth of a salary, the larger debt that was forgiven was $100,000. And that equivalent debt for two months is about 4200 So who's going to love the money lender more? The one who was forgiven $100,000 or the one who was forgiven $4,200? It's pretty obvious at this point. Now, I think it's important to say that both are grateful, um, but one exceedingly more so. And then Jesus takes this parable and, and then uses it to point to the Pharisee and the woman and compares the two and how he's been treated at this banquet. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she from the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon, you haven't even performed the minimal duties required of someone who's hosting a banquet and this sinful woman who is not even formally invited has taken up your role and then some. And she has lavished devotion upon me from the moment she's walked in. And it's here in the story that we begin to understand what the source of the sinful woman's devotion to Jesus was. What caused her to seek him out? To come to a party only to publicly ugly cry in front of everybody there. You know, she comes and she weeps and she washes. 
She dries his feet with his hair. And our answer comes in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. This is the answer to her devotion. This, her many sins have been forgiven. She has experienced freedom as only found through forgiveness. For her sinful lifestyle, by contrast, the Pharisee, who is the religious leader of the time, the religious elite, has been forgiven very little and therefore has shown Jesus very little love. And as I was thinking through this, Tim Keller has this great quote where he says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved as well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw throw our way. This sinful woman is a living example of this Tim Keller quote. Her devotion to Jesus is that she is fully known. Her sinful lifestyle, the good, the bad, the ugly, the not talked about in the public and the let's never speak about this again in private. And she is truly loved by God. She's liberated from pretense and self-righteousness and is therefore free to worship God as one who has been made pure. And then Jesus turns and looks at the sinful woman in the face knowing exactly what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner, and truly loving her as only God can do, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And in hearing Jesus' pronouncement, he sets off a firestorm of a debate because all of a sudden everybody hears that Jesus is pronouncing her forgiven. And at the time, the only place you could be forgiven was at the temple. And while they're having this big debate amongst themselves at the table, Jesus just looks at her and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so who is this Jesus that forgives sins? Because Jesus proves to Simon through this short parable that he's actually truly a prophet. He's a spokesman for God and he's more than a prophet. He's actually God in the flesh. And it's who Luke told us about earlier in one of those first six chapters where he says, the spirit, is a Lord, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Or in John 3, 17, he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is the Son of God, the one for whom the prophets of old spoke about. He's come proclaiming a new kingdom and a new kingdom ethic, proclaiming freedom for the prisoners, and he's setting the oppressed free. And he's teaching them and us about the upside down nature of the kingdom of God, where he's teaching about radical generosity. He's teaching about servant leadership, peacemaking, and forgiveness. And in this story about this sinful woman, this purposeful, devoted, forgiven woman, we experience through her the forgiveness of God. Not the sibling hug it out kind, but true forgiveness that allows us to experience freedom is only found through Christ. God's love that knows us fully, knows our good, our bad, our ugly, are not talked about in public, and I let's never speak about this again in private. And he says, I didn't come here to condemn you, but to save you. And this forgiveness, this freedom is received in the same way as the sinful woman. 
that comes by faith in Christ, that comes by faith and trust in His death, His burial, and His resurrection, and His offer of eternal life. And this freedom found in Christ not only frees us from the captivity and oppression of our sin, from pretense, but it humbles us out of our self-righteousness and allows us to live out the kingdom ethic of radical generosity in the form of radical forgiveness. And in coming back to the question that started all of this off, how can I cultivate true forgiveness when I've been mistreated? It starts when we experience the freedom that is only found in the forgiveness of God towards us. And by experiencing God's forgiveness towards our good, our bad, and our ugly, we can then extend it to others. And as I mentioned earlier, I was watching a lot of videos this week, and the one that stood out to me the most that I think drives this point home more than any other is a young lady by the name of Rachel Denhollander. And she was an Olympic, well, she was a gymnast. And she was the first one to speak out against the Olympic doctor, Dr. Nasir, who over 20 years had abused um, Olympic female athletes that were gymnasts. And so I want you to hear what she has to say. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is that God himself loved us so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but when you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a millstone to be thrown around your neck and you throw into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries its final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on one like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it is grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. The sinful woman wept, having experienced the soul-crushing weight of her sin and experienced what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. She was extended grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. We in turn as Christians have experienced the soul-crushing weight of our sin and experienced what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. We have been extended grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And this is the freedom found in forgiveness. This grace and hope and mercy 
is not just for us. And while not explicitly stated in this passage, the implications for us having received forgiveness is that we are to extend that same grace and hope and mercy we've received to others. Especially to those who have mistreated us. The forgiveness we receive from God humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And this should be the kingdom rule. This should be that radical forgiveness that we display. And this kingdom ethic is explicitly stated all over Scripture. Um, And I think the place that most of us know by heart is the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus is teaching us to pray, he He says what? Forgive our trespasses as we ignore the forgiveness, or as we ignore those who have trespassed against us? No. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. I think we like to skim over the last part of that sentence or kind of kind of mumble through it as quickly as we can, but we can't deny it. This kingdom ethic is all over the New Testament. Jesus in teaching us how to pray is telling us that while we receive forgiveness on the one hand, we have to offer and extend it to others with our other hand. And I think as we talk about how do we forgive those who have mistreated us, I think it's important to know a few things about what forgiveness is not. Because forgiveness doesn't mean that you're pardoning or excusing what the other person has done to you. And forgiveness doesn't mean that you shouldn't have any more feelings about the situation. The wounds that we are talking about are real. And as cheesy as it sounds, it really does take time for them to heal. It took Ava 50 years to forgive the Nazis and the doctor for what she had experienced. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there's nothing further to work out in the relationship or that all of a sudden because you've said these magical words, I forgive you that you're instantly reconciled. And it doesn't mean that you have to continue to include that person in your life. And forgiveness isn't something you always do for the other person. It's oftentimes something you do for yourself. Lewis Mead said it best in his book, Forgive and Forget. When you release the wrongdoer from the wrong, you cut a malignant tumor out of your inner life. You set a prisoner free. But you discover the real prisoner was yourself. Jesus came to set the captives free. And oftentimes that captive is yourself. And know that when we choose to extend grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, we experience freedom. Freedom from bitterness. And sitting through those alpha videos, one of the best examples I've heard is, is bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping it kills the other person. It frees us from anger. Frees us from anger towards God as if He got it wrong, or anger towards ourselves for letting the situation happen. It frees us from our shame because our identity is no longer found in an experience that has happened to us, but that our identity is found in what Christ has done on our behalf. And it gives us freedom in our relationship with God. We're no longer harboring bitterness and anger and revenge plans, but we're free to worship and and experience that relationship with God as no other. And so in coming back to the question, how can I cultivate true forgiveness when I've been mistreated? It first starts by experiencing what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. It's experiencing grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And being humbled out of our self-righteousness, we can then extend the same grace and hope and mercy where where none should be found to those who have mistreated us. So in closing, I just have two questions for you guys today. The first is, have you personally experienced what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet? That grace and hope and mercy, it's waiting there for you. And two, if you have experienced it, who do you 
need to extend grace and hope and mercy to. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your gospel. We're grateful that it sets the captives free, which includes us. And so we pray that as we allow this message of forgiveness to soak in, that you would allow us the power to live it out, um, honoring and representing you. We pray all this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.